Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm going to jump in with a little bit of a content or trigger warning here. Elizabeth and I don't just talk about evangelical Christianity in the abstract. We both talk about our own faiths. And I know that Christianity has not been kind to a lot of people in the world. It has been the source of a lot of destruction. Um, Well, I would say that the kind of Christianity I believe in is not a source of destruction and hatred. But there have been people who have done horrible things in the name of Christianity. And so if that is something that is going to get in the way of you being able to hear us, then come back another time. We will be here. And I also wanted to note that Elizabeth does mention somewhat in passing the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal. So if that is something that is going to get in the way of you being able to hear us, know that that is there. But I think this is a good discussion. Those of you who feel like you can do it, please join us. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us, or in some cases, letting them divide us. That is kind of the work of this particular episode. We're going to be talking to Washington Post writer Elizabeth Brunig about a piece she wrote this week, a long-form piece of journalism with the title, Evangelicals View Trump as Their Protector. Will They Stand By Him in 2020? It's a question that a lot of pundits are asking these days. I have seen headlines that seem to indicate somewhat uncertainty about this. Uh, Elizabeth is is more certain. We'll be talking to her about why she feels the way she does and what she saw on her reporting trip to Texas in just a minute. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I am excited to talk to you about Trump and evangelical Christians, um, primarily white evangelical Christians. I think it's important to note that a lot of, I think a lot of coverage, it's starting to make that distinction, but for a long time it didn't. Uh, so you went down to Texas and you did an investigation kind of into the relationship between evangelical Christians and Trump these days. The headline of your piece asks, evangelicals view Trump as their protector. Will they stand by him in 2020? Is there, did you find an answer to that question? Yeah, and I was surprised um, a little bit. Uh, I think that I went into the piece assuming that all of the scandals and all of the complications of the Trump presidency 
would have worn out his supporters a little bit. I mean, anyone who's had the experience of supporting a politician who keeps making mistakes uh, <laughs> knows, knows that after a while you get weary and you get tired of explaining yourself and explaining away their mistakes. And so I, I thought there would be some kind of attrition. Uh, and what I found was actually the opposite, uh, that the folks that I spoke to felt like they were even more supportive of Trump than they had been in 2016 and predicted even higher turnout and even more intense support from other evangelicals going into 2020. I was curious about the last couple of years. So uh, evangelicals, white evangelicals, supported Trump, really high numbers across the board, young ones, old ones, all supported Trump. And um, I was very curious about whether the criticism lodged at them for that, which has been pretty intense over the past couple of years, you know, calling into question how evangelicals can support somebody like Trump as he sort of piles one scandal atop another. I wondered if that had had an impact on how they were feeling about Trump going into 2020, whether they had become sort of negatively polarized and even more supportive of him, whether they uh, felt the media had been unfair there, and so it had sort of made them even more inclined to, to support Trump against uh, against even questions of conscience. So so that's what I really wanted to figure out. And I appreciate um, other people may not know this, but you come to this story as someone who has both evangelicals in her family and is herself a person of faith. Right. So I grew up a Methodist in North Texas where the story is set, and I converted to Catholicism later on when I was in divinity school, actually. Um, it's a good time to convert, I, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, it, a, lot of, uh, a lot of spiritual stuff goes on for people in that, in that period. Um, and then also, I mean, I, I was born and raised in Texas, and so about half my extended family, my aunt and uncle, cousins, um, are evangelical themselves. So it seems to me, like, you write pretty sensitively about... Um, people of faith in general, I think. And I appreciate you went into this piece with genuine curiosity. Like, you just wanted to understand, I think, what was happening. And I, I, I'm sure you have judgments, because that's human. But they're mostly kept out of the piece. Like, you're really just, like, asking what's going on here. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you 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 shy away from from engaging in one of the more uh, pl- you know, pleasurable <laughs> um, criticisms that that people on the left have of evangelicals who support Trump. Um, you know, people. I, I I don't think I've engaged with this in this personally, but there's a lot of people on the left, especially people of faith on the left, who who seem to sort of relish, quite frankly, um, calling you know. Trump supporting evangelicals hypocrites or saying that they've been duped. There was a headline in Mother Jones recently. I think that said something like Trump plays evangelicals for fools yet again, right? Right. Uh, or to see them as just completely transactional, right? That they right. they're just they're they're there for the Supreme Court justices. That's all. It seems like you found a sort of more complicated set of answers. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, one thing to keep in mind about evangelicals is they're as diverse in their reasoning as any group of voters. So you think of voters who, you know, 
white millennials, say, who supported Clinton or who support Sanders, you go into that group, you're going to find a diverse set of reasons for the choices they've made. And uh, the same thing is true of evangelicals. Now, somebody could say, I don't agree with any of those reasons. Um, and I think, you know, that's a fair judgment to make. But there are different ones. And, and that was something that I was interested in drawing out, that there is a level of transactional politics going on where there's a high priority placed on the Supreme Court. Evangelicals certainly aren't the only conservatives to make that calculation. Uh, and then, you know, there is some tension. And I think that the pastor that I spoke to in the piece, uh, Pastor Barber of the Farmersville Baptist Church, he was very frank and upfront about that tension, about the difficulty of being a pastor and supporting a person like Trump, who has a character like Trump's. Um, so, I mean, I think that I was interested in drawing out the differences and the the different textures, I guess, uh, of support for Trump among evangelicals. Trump's characterization of the media as having been sort of supremely unfair to him has struck a chord with evangelicals. They feel like the media is also very unfair to them. So they have taken the media's criticism of Trump or the criticisms they see in the media and attribute to the media as uh evidence that Trump is good, that he's strong, that he's making the right people angry, that he's being treated unfairly in the same way they are, and so they've become even more supportive. And then I think the other thing that is worth looking at is that evangelicals actually have gotten a lot of what they wanted out of Trump. They've gotten their Supreme Court justices. Uh, if, if you're an evangelical who's very interested in the politics of Israel, the embassy was moved to Jerusalem. That was something that other Republican presidents like Bush and Reagan had spoken about or even promised and had failed to come through on. Trump actually came through on it. So they actually have some scores uh, racking up with Trump that they can count coup with. I mean, and against other Republicans, not just against Democrats. One of the things you note in your piece is that this embrace of Trump is their adaption of the idea that you can't use politics to advance the public good, that politics is about something else than advancing the public good. And when I read that, I was like, oh, then I wonder what they see it as useful for. And the person you were talking to answered that question with blood sport, that that's right. what politics is for them now, not a means to advance good, but to, yeah. to exact revenge. Right. Yeah. You, you can see a period in evangelical history where politics about making the United States a more moral and more godly nation. Uh, even as recently as Bush, that was the idea. And they thought they could use law to enforce some morality and make this place a better place to be and, and increase its fortunes and its favor from God. And you don't really see that anymore. You see a, a, a language of accommodation that evangelicals are a persecuted minority, that the dominant culture is hostile to them in a way that infringes on their religious liberty, and what they need are accommodations from the law to sort of live in enclaves and do what they want. Now, that's not the only type of political action they pursue, obviously, uh, but that's where their rhetoric has gone. And theologically, they seem to have done something of a, of a 180 from what I have read about how evangelicals engage with politics, because I know there was one view that we make this nation more perfect, right? That that's actually what's going to get us to the second coming is like, 
we continue to be a godly nation, you know, and, and et cetera, onward and upward. Their theology right now, at least the people you talk to, again, diverse group, but those who you spoke to in Texas, is that end times are coming. Uh, so, you know, oh, oh well, things are going to be terrible, uh, but maybe Trump will carve out this safe space for us for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> that seems weird. Like, theologically, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know how that tracks, but that's how they're thinking. Yeah, but there, there's an apocalyptic focus in evangelicalism. I mean, that, that's a pretty strong vein running through there. Uh, but it, it's definitely not sort of a, a great awakening type theology where there's a hope of creating a more perfect union here. The The hope seems to have shifted to we can be protected as an enclave with no hope of being a dominant majority. And in fact, they view it as a good thing and a good sign, a positive sign that they're not a dominant majority because there are certain passages in the Bible that suggest the dominant culture will always be sinful and that a very small number, an elect, if you want to use that kind of uh, sort of Calvinist language or just a select few people uh, will be interested enough and committed enough to have faith and be virtuous. So the fact that they're a minority and they feel that the dominant culture is hostile to them is taken as sort of proof of concept. Um, and, and that seems to be where they've gone theologically, is, is we're going to be a small number, uh, a good example, and what we need is the legal latitude to do that, um, not the opportunity to sort of transform the dominant culture at large. And it's an enclave that doesn't necessarily include Trump himself. They seem, the people, again, the people you talk to seem fairly blunt about that. There was no, he's secretly a Christian like us, which is one narrative that, you know, you see sometimes. It was more like, he's our hired gun, you know, he's the, he's our tough. And he's yeah. he's engaging in the spiritual warfare that now we don't have to engage in. Right. I, I did hear... One person, this didn't make it into the story, but there was one interview I did. Um, you know, a lot of stuff always winds up yeah. on the cutting room floor. Uh, with someone who did say, I believe Trump has experienced a conversion and actually is a very spiritual person. But that wasn't the majority of people. I, I know that there's a narrative out there that evangelicals are duped. They've been tricked. They think that Trump is like them. And I, I actually didn't encounter very much of that. The majority of people that I spoke to were well aware that Trump was not an evangelical and in some sense felt like it made him a better fit for the job, that Pence, for example, uh, wouldn't be as good as Trump for evangelicals precisely because he has restraint, he has decency, he has these evangelical virtues, and Trump doesn't have those. So in some ways, he's even better for evangelicals. What's what's crazy about that is that I don't personally, you know, endorse uh, Pence's style of Christianity, but they're in that analysis. They are saying Pence is too Christ-like to be their warrior. No, absolutely. Is, uh, <laughs> Sorry, I mean, I mean like is, uh, <laughs> that's wild. That's just that's. Uh, I mean, and, but this is such a key part of Christianity as well. Is this is something that all of the disciples have to grapple with. Right. That, you know, at the point of the crucifixion, which is why I thought that it was very handy that I went down there around Easter. Mm. You know, Jesus is being taken away to be crucified, and there's some frustration. You know, why won't he fight? 
you know, Peter cuts a guy's ear off, Jesus puts it back on. <laughs> and, uh, and, there's a, and there's a real conflict there. Why won't you fight? Why won't you protect yourself, protect us? You know, show them who's boss. We've been persecuted and oppressed for so long. And that's just not how Jesus chooses uh, to handle that. And so I, I think that's a, a very deep tension in Christianity. It's a tension, but like in my faith, like it's. So I've said before that I think of Christianity as trying to be more Christ-like, a follower of Christ. Yes. Absolutely. So I look at the story, the Easter story, and what I get from that is the, we have, must have the faith to not engage in violence, right? That we must have the faith to not take revenge. That there is something, there's something very powerful about trusting God and not needing to take, you know, earthly vengeance, yeah, and I think that, that that's obviously the lesson of Christ and the lesson of the Easter story. But. <laughs> but, but then, you know, we're all human. And, yeah. and also, I, I mean, I remember having this discussion um, with a Catholic thinker uh, a while back who, who said, you know, you want to defend Christians and you want to protect them. And you want to argue that Christians should be treated well and so on. But because of the very logic of Christianity, you lose a certain amount of moral credibility when you make a stand for your own folks, because Christianity has built into it this immense capacity for mercy, for meekness, and so on and so forth. And, and I do think that creates real frustrations among, among Christians in, in all periods of history, and that's something that evangelicals are, are clearly grappling with now. Do we turn the other cheek? Do we try to be Christ-like? Do we continue being evangelical and trying to convert and persuade, or do we fight? It seems like the Trump-supporting evangelicals have answered some of those questions. I mean, I, I can't, we can't know, like, everyone's individual spiritual journey is theirs, and can't see into how they're thinking, but we can see into what they say and who they support. And it seems to me like there's been a decision to maybe, and this is actually perhaps how they're you know squaring that circle, is that they will turn the other cheek, but Trump doesn't have to. No, absolutely. So they've said, we'll have it both ways. Yeah. Um, we Which I don't think was part of the instruction, but, you know. Just... <laughs> no, no. I mean, it, it, it's, it's very vexing. I mean, if you put yourself in their, in their position, but, but that's what they've decided yeah. is we'll have it both ways. We'll turn inward. We'll have these sealed off enclaves that are protected legally where we can do whatever we want. And it has to be said that doing whatever they want is not uh, as, as harmless as it may sound right, because that includes things like, you think about the Masterpiece Cake Shop mm -hmm. uh, case. You think about the different ways that they might want to run schools or businesses based on their religious affiliations in areas where they're the majority. So it's not uh, without its complications, the way that they want to live. But at the same time, Trump will fight for us, and he'll fight very, very, very hard. Whether it's a job interview or your dating profile, your smile can help you make the best first impression. But if your smile isn't as vibrant as you'd like it to be, ARC can help you feel more confident. 
ARC is a new way to achieve professional-level teeth whitening at home for just 30 minutes a day. Each ARC treatment includes dentist-approved enamel-safe whitening strips that adhere to your upper and lower teeth along with ARC Blue Light technology. The Blue Light mouthpiece arcs around your entire smile, delivering targeted blue light energy to help weaken set-in stains below the enamel surface, making your treatment more effective than strips alone. Arc can help you reveal a smile that's 50 times wider than a leading whitening toothpaste, and they offer satisfaction guaranteed. To help our listeners get a wider, brighter smile, Arc is offering $15 off your first purchase of a blue light kit when you visit arcsmile.com and use promo code FRIENDS at checkout. Go to arcsmile.com and use promo code FRIENDS for $15 off your blue light whitening kit. That's arcsmile.com, promo code FRIENDS. So it sounds to me like they're taking a page from Rod Dreher and his Benedict option idea, which is he explicitly endorses enclaves, like physical enclaves. One of the strongest criticisms I read of that idea had to do not just with how those enclaves may be harmful in that, you know, how they could run their businesses and whatnot, but they do harm to the children there. (laughs) They do harm to themselves in a way. Like that that kind of uh, turning inward is also not Christ-like, is also not engaging with, with you know, there is, the reason why evangelicals are called evangelicals is that they are supposed to spread the word, right? So turning inward seems like it's just so, I guess I'm like out loud now just trying to grapple with my own frustrations with this. Um which I realize that they, I, I don't, again, I don't want to judge their faith. Right. But I'm having a real hard time. It's very hard. I mean, it, it, and because you can see, you can see the conflict in them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with somebody like Rod Dreher, I disagree with him on, you know, just about everything. Um, but at the same time, I have no doubt he sincerely believes yeah. and that he's trying to find a way to do that in the world that feels safe and virtuous to him. And my perspective is that there is no safe way to be a Christian. That's the point. Mm-hmm. So Christians are going to have to live in the world. They're going to have to live with people who are not Christian. The ideal is that we are good exemplars of the faith. Um, and that we live our faith in a way that makes other people want to believe or take an interest in what we believe. Um, but that let your light shine, be the salt of the earth, it requires you to be in contact with forces that are contradictory and in tension with Christianity, and you have to handle that, and you have to live with it every day. So these, these fantasies of building enclaves where Christianity is the single and only doctrine and that everyone completely agrees and there's no tension or complexity that comes out of being a Christian just seems misplaced to me. A misplaced, arrogant also, a privilege yes. also. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that, that bowled me over in your piece, one of the quotes, is is Everyone in the piece is sympathetic in the sense that I believe they are sincere. Now, I have a question about how much sincerity matters ultimately in, in life. <laughs> um, uh, 
a lot of really good things have been accomplished uh, without people being sincere. I, 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 I am sincere in that belief. Um, uh, but these people are sincere. The people in story are sincere. And that pastor that you referred to in the small town, Farmersville, he says something, or you you paraphrase something that he puts puts forth that just blew my mind, which is that he's decided the excesses that he thought might happen seem unlikely to unfold. Yes. And I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Trump just reinstituted the death penalty, you know, or his attorney general did, which to me, again, baby Christian that I am, not so Christian, you know, Um, he there's the children being caged at the border, which a lot of people in this piece do express discomfort about. But Jesus Christ, Jesus I call upon you. Like, to, the excesses haven't actually happened. To be able to say the excesses have not unfold, unfolded, just, just I was flabbergasted. Like, are they just not? I mean, I think that a lot of people went into Trump's presidency feeling like it, it might be completely apocalyptic. Oh, I think and it then, is. <laughs> and then the world didn't end. Life went on. The economy did okay. Of course, now people are sort of raising questions about the future of the economy, but things didn't completely implode, especially for these Well, not folks, for white people, you know? no. Right, right. And so, so they're saying, well, I thought it might be totally apocalyptic. Actually, for me, life went on as usual, so maybe I don't need to worry so much about whether or not Trump is a, is a complete disaster, because if you're uh, a white American Christian, then he's not. Now, aren't they supposed to be counting on the apocalypse, though? Right? Like, well, I mean, that's another thing, right? Is that <laughs> everybody looks forward to the apocalypse, but the apocalypse uh, comes with all of these uncomfortable things, uh, you know, tribulations. And, and that's the part it's hard to get excited about. I was thinking about what a parallel you could draw between these evangelicals and Trump. And what I landed on was actually that they both— come to their positions, current stances out of a kind of nihilism. For these evangelical Christians, it's a nihilism based on, oh, well, the apocalypse is coming. We, we, we'll get the safe, that what we were talking about earlier, which is the apocalypse is coming. Maybe we'll get a safe space until then. And that's, to me, a nihilistic point of view. And that's also the nihilism of the enclaves. The enclaves are a nihilistic idea, too. Right, because they're they're expressing a lack of hope that things can change. We will just buckle down. Right. Trump. Well, I think that's exactly right, and right. and I think there's also a nihilism that comes from having disappointment with prior Republican presidents. So they've given up on politics because they've supported several traditional Republicans. You know, starting with Reagan and then Bush and then Bush Jr. and and None of them have given them what they really wanted, and and none of them have changed the country in such a way that evangelicals feel like they're on top. So there's a real disappointment, a disillusionment there, for sure. And of course, our evangelicals aren't supposed to feel like they're on top. That's actually part of the deal. But anyway, <laughs> um, but their nihilism, I feel like their nihilism stems from this worldview that's like someday the apocalypse will come, and it it winds up matching up really well with Trump's form of nihilism, which is, I just don't give a fuck. Yeah. 
And they so they land in the same place. They land together. Trump's nihilism is more short term, like immediate term, I guess. Like it is it, he does not think about tomorrow at all. And they are thinking about beyond tomorrow, all of the tomorrows. And yet right. they wind up in the same place. Yeah. And I think that part of that is just the work of politics, of sort of, you know, shaving down our options to the closest comparator. And for them, for white evangelicals, for their experience, Trumpish sort of nihilism, disillusionment with politics, a willingness to sort of pull back the curtain and expose how transactional and cynical the political world really is, how sinful and how evil it actually is, which has been a big part of what Trump has uh, done in terms of pitching himself um, to traditional conservatives. Uh, I think they wind up being on the same side of things, sort of for better or worse. Yeah. Mm. Yes, for better or worse. All right, we're going to take a quick break and be right back. Would you buy a T-shirt for $50 if you knew it only took $7 to make? You would not. You do not have to. You can buy from Everlane, where you never overpay for quality clothes, and you know exactly what you are paying for. They are radically transparent about where they get their clothes from, how they get them, and they also produce really cool clothes. They make premium essentials using only the finest materials. And I'll be honest, I have been wearing their summer weight crop jeans um, a lot. They are basically my jeans of the summer. Uh, they are incredibly like soft. Like the material is like just a cotton. It's almost more cottony than denim, but it has the wearability of denim. It goes with everything. It doesn't show stains so much. Or and if it does have some dirt on it, like people don't expect jeans to be totally clean, or at least I don't. So I've been wearing them all the time. Uh, I also love uh, their Cotton Crew t-shirt. And also, weirdly, here in Minnesota, it still gets chilly sometimes. Being from Texas, I'm unfamiliar with that concept. And so I have been wearing my Everlane Cotton Cardigan a lot. So I heavily endorse Everlane. I've actually bought Everlane with my own money out of my own pocket. It's not like they just send me stuff. And you can check out my personalized collection at everlane.com slash friends. You will get free shipping on your first order. I would like you to check it out. That's everlane.com slash friends for free shipping on your first order. Have you heard about this company making stylish shoes for women and girls out of recycled plastic water bottles? I bet you have if you're a person who cares about fashion and you're on Instagram because they're all over Instagram. That's probably where I first saw them. And I also saw them on Instagram because friend of the pod, Shannon Watts, director of Moms Demand Action, is a huge fan of these shoes. Apparently, they're like the unofficial shoe of Moms Demand Action, and they post like rothy selfies fairly often. They have a big march coming up, actually, and I predict they will post a picture of themselves wearing rothies. They are stylish, sustainable, comfortable, washable all in one pair of shoes. I have a pair of kind of the flats, but they are also making skimmers these days, which I, I may, again, go and use my own money to buy. They do come in a wide range of colors and styles. They go with everything from yoga pants to dresses to skirts in a wide range of colors as well. Four different silhouettes. They launch new colors and patterns every few weeks, and they sell out fast. Since Rothy's are seamlessly crafted from recycled water bottles, they are comfortable as soon as you slip them on. There is zero break-in period. They come with free shipping and returns and exchanges. No risk, no worries. 
no reason not to try them. They're also fully machine washable, a nice thing in the summertime, probably also in the wintertime, but especially in the summertime. They are also manufactured in a zero-waste factory. They ship directly to you in the shoebox. There are no unnecessary packaging. You will quickly discover why BuzzFeed called them forever shoes. Check out the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com slash WFLT. Go to rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash WFLT to get your new favorite pair of flats. Comfort, style, sustainability. These are the shoes that you've been waiting for. The piece ends on a somewhat personal note from you. You've, we mentioned before that you have evangelicals in your family. And it sounds like you had intended to maybe talk to those people for your piece. Is that right? Yeah. That was the idea. (laughs) (laughs) And you wound up not doing that. Can you talk a little bit about why? So, you know, um, my family that is evangelical and they are Trump supporters, they were very happy to participate. I asked them about it before I pitched the idea to my editor, thinking that I would like to talk to them and also that they would be a good starting point to meeting other, you know, evangelicals in the North Texas community. Uh, they were very interested and they were very willing, and I was really excited to spend some time with them. And then by the time I did all of the other interviews I had, I just didn't think I could be objective. And there are a couple of ways that cut. On the one hand, you don't want to make your own family look unsympathetic. You don't want to make them look like bad people. And you don't want to present them as having bad ideas. At the same time, it's impossible not to be especially frustrated with your own family when they're wrong about things. Because they're not just strangers that you can dismiss as everybody has their own point of view. There are people who are very close to you and important to you who say something about you because they're a part of you. They're your family. So it's, it's doubly hard on both sides. You're, you're extra frustrated by the places where you have these very intense and very impactful disagreements. And on the other hand, you have a hard time being objective when someone that you love is doing something that's unsympathetic. And so rather than try to square the circle, I just decided uh, that I would be honest with the readers and say, look, I was not certain in the end that I was going to be able to write this in a way that I could live with. And so I didn't write it at all. As a reader, I, I'm of two minds. One, I'm a little disappointed. Uh, I confess. I know, right? Because that would be the dishiest part. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, as a, as a writer, I am glad to see a colleague resist the striptease that we often do when we are telling stories about our our own beliefs like the there is a i think the marketplace incentivizes us to do that kind of messy work for the sake of its messiness in public rather than yeah. work g- genuinely trying to work it out which all of that best work happens in private yeah i think that's right there is something that's very intriguing 
about these very difficult stories where people are really kind of gutting themselves. And I have certainly read stories like that where I thought, this is really good. It's very insightful. It's really raw and human. If you can do it. And, you know, with the length this was already at, with the other interviews I already had, I just didn't think I could do it. And I didn't really want to. I, I, I just didn't want to do that to my family at the end of the day. And so it was something where, you know, when I went into it, I hadn't really fully thought it out. And then by the end, when I had thought more about it and had more time to contemplate it, sort of being fully immersed in all the reporting, I just didn't want to do it anymore. People ask me all the time why I don't have my Trump-supporting family members on this show, given that one of our goals is to talk about differences, especially, not especially, but often differences between those people who share something else in common. But I feel like I've learned the very, very hard way that the closer you are to someone, the less likely it is that an argument about politics is about politics. Right. It's about everything else. (laughs) Yeah. It's about your whole shared history and who you are and your family and your place in the, in the great tapestry of your whole lineage and, and every experience you've ever had with them and, and, the way that you're entangled with other people in your family. I mean, that that's the reason that, I mean, I have Trump-supporting relatives, my own parents, um, but I don't write about it because, like you're saying, the, the process of writing about that and giving full context would be a complete disemboweling of myself mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and would be much more of a story about a relationship between people than politics, and you, you you kind of lose something in that process, I think. And it, I don't mean this part to be like transactional and cold-blooded about it, but I also have seen in, seen in my life that those people we are close to are also potentially the people we have the best chance of, of touching, not necessarily changing their minds, but of showing them a different way to think about things, but it has to be show and not tell. Like you can't yeah. argue a loved one into changing his or her mind. You might oh, absolutely. be able to, as I think you mentioned before, like live your values in a way that is intriguing to someone who dis- to a loved one who disagrees. We call that an AA. We call that um, a program of attraction, not promotion which is my favorite way of describing evangelism, too. Um, But, yeah, those those conversations, and and as soon as they go public, that adds a whole other very unpleasant tangle of issues, you know. Um, So, I, like I said, I sort of, on the one hand, as a reader, somewhat disappointed as a writer who has the same kinds of temptations— I think more of us should make that choice. I don't want to, well, that sounds, hmm. I don't want to judge other people. But I appreciate other writers making space to not do that. Yeah, 
I think that, and I, I at least tried to be honest about my thinking there. And 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 the other issue with with doing anything with your family is, I don't even know how I feel. <laughs> There's a, a, such a deep well of emotion yeah. going back, you know, decades, my whole life, uh, that the way that I feel about my family and their politics is in some ways mysterious even to me. Uh, the reason that certain things piss me off the way they do, or the reason that I'm able to tolerate certain things, uh, the reason there are certain subjects that just can't be broached, that that's all sort of mired in uh, this thick veil of history uh, that I haven't certainly unwound yet, and so certainly not going to try to do it on the page when I haven't done it on my own. Having congratulated you on not doing an emotional striptease, I now am going to ask you something very personal. Uh, I'm hoping you'll be willing to share, which is, so how are you feeling about Trump and the apocalypse? Not necessarily literal the apocalypse, but like, like I've been feeling, um, I've had a lot of waves of hopelessness lately about where we are. And I've had to turn to my own faith. And I'm curious how how you're doing. It's hard. I, uh, there's a real temptation to sort of ironic detachment, treating politics as an observer. I'm just along for the ride. I'm not a participant. I'm just observing this. And in some cases, distancing myself from it in a way that's sort of protective, right? Because there are so many things uh, to feel despair about. And I do feel a little despair. I mean, by the time I got to the end of this piece, that was more or less my takeaway, which is I don't see any of the trends that I talked about in the piece reversing anytime soon. So the sort of head-to-head collision of evangelical conservatism and their brand of politics, which is not limited to them. There are other conservatives who line up along the same battle lines. And then this sort of liberal politics that seemed to send in under Obama and the socialist politics that you now see sort of burgeoning with young people, uh, not only young people, but quite a few millennial left voters seem headed that direction. Uh, I don't see any of those trends suddenly collapsing in on themselves and dying off, but also it seems like they're gridlocked. Mm. Uh, if not politically, then certainly culturally. And politics seems downstream of culture in certain ways. So if they're culturally gridlocked and I don't see any of them backing down or giving way to any of the others, uh, then it looks like we're just going to be in this same spiral of polarization that we've been experiencing for the past couple of decades, uh, even heightening polarization uh, and, and, and therefore conflict. And that's a little disturbing to me. That was a really good description of what's happening. And I'm wondering how you're doing with that. (laughs) (laughs) So um, part of my, uh, part of, I guess like a, a strange personality trait is like I get very upset about things. I'm interested in sort of obsessing about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was part of the reasoning for writing this story. 
The other thing I've been hyper-focused on is the Catholic sex abuse crisis. Mm -hmm. Being Catholic, that's sort of the apocalypse for us um, that's unfolding in real time. So I've been working on stories regarding that, and I have one right now that's uh, in the in the hopper. Um, and uh, at the same time, I have two young children, uh, so I am obligated to be sort of cheerful and upbeat and silly uh, for a big part of the day. And faking it until you make it has benefits. Like I said, in sincerity, I am totally cool with it. <laughs> And so that that has been a, a big part of sort of getting by. Uh, and then, you know, the other part is uh, at the end of the day, just saying I've done what I can, uh, trying to put in the work that I feel that I can, doing good stories, doing good reportage, trying to understand and help other people understand sort of as fellow travelers with me, um, trying to help victims where I can. Uh, that's certainly part of how I think about the role of journalism uh, is giving voice to the voiceless and and then hoping that the apocalypse doesn't come. I mean, a, a big part of the Christian religion is hope. In fact, it used to be my middle name. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sort of bearing up against all odds. That's also part of the Easter story. Yeah, I, 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 it's actually, I could get emotional right now. Um, like the Easter story is sort of what brought me around, to be honest. Like there is, there is um, the combination of grace and hope that it offers. Yeah. You know, it's one of the big selling points of the whole Christianity thing, I think. I think it's one of our best. Yeah. The nativity is also very good. True. Uh, True. Everybody has good feelings about the holidays. Yeah. That's, it was almost too, that's almost too, it's almost too secular for me. Like. That is true. It's been completely, it's like, it's like Halloween, which had a a once upon a time religious thing, but now it's basically a secular cultural holiday. Yeah. That's true. But Easter remains uh, a very difficult holiday. Well, it should be, I think. Uh, and it should be. Yeah. And it, 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 all of these big dramatic emotions about love and death and despair and hope get folded into it, which make it uh, quite a big thing to grapple with and also a good backdrop for political instances of despair and hope. Yeah, the, and above it all, I would say faith. Um the thing, so I had a, when I was grappling about whether or not I would just kind of go f- full Christian, as yeah. I thought of it, I was working with this woman who uh, had, had no, knew in sobriety, was kind of working her way back into her life. She had been a Harvard Divinity School student and a pastor and found herself in St. Paul working at a Barnes & Noble. Uh but she and I used to have long talks, and I was telling her about my hesitations. That the Easter story is actually a big hesitation for me. Like, come on, right? D- died and was raised. Are you, you know, come on, right? 
And she said something that sort of changed my life, which was the point of the Easter story, while, yes, him being raised is obviously where it ends, but that he being willing to die is just as important. Absolutely. That the gift of that faith, not knowing what would happen, you know, that's that's the hope that lifts the world. And I think that's why I find the nihilism of these people you talk to so upsetting and so contrary to what I consider to be the central tenet of my faith. And I feel like the looking toward the apocalypse uh, is sort of folded in to that. Mm-hmm. Um it's nothing that I look forward to. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to. I don't want the apocalypse to happen. I, I know that it you know, eventually will, uh, but uh, certainly nothing I want to trigger. And it's not something that I especially welcome, uh, because uh, human life is good, and uh, people are good, and uh, and I believe that not purely good, but on a fundamental level, the fact that we're here is good. And, and that's something that I strongly believe in. It's in the Genesis story. God makes earth and all of animal and plant life and human life and says it's good. So it is. And that's missing, I think, in a lot of Christian politics now. And, and that's a big point of departure for me. Yeah. If you can't agree that we're good, then there would be... <laughs> then you're yeah. going to wind up not caring if we disappear. Right, or even wishing it yeah. on some level, uh, because it would, you know, reduce a certain amount of complications, um, but but for the worse. And, and so part of life as a Christian, and I think as anybody, is saying you know, there are these conflicts and complications in terms of doing life together, which is what politics is, is how are we all going to live together in peace. But ultimately, it's good, and it's for the good. And having turned away from that and turned to, well, it's about blood sport, it's about punishing enemies or getting revenge or carving out a space where we can be dominant, that all seems to miss the mark to me. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me. I had no... um uh, I didn't think that I would get uh, quite so emotionally invested in this conversation as I did. Uh, <laughs> I think this is just proof that we should talk off the air more. It, it is. It is true. Um, definitely, we should do that. And we'll just leave the listeners with that as a little like, And oh, well, you know what? That's actually perfect because all that messy work of growth does usually happen in those conversations. As much as I love Very this true. show and want people to grow from listening to it, the place we should have the conversations where we grow is actually just with each other. So That's true. I appreciate your invitation, and I will take you up on it. Thank you so much for having me on. It was great talking to you. And that is almost it for the show. I have a little bit more to say this week. Because earlier in the week, I saw this piece of news, a tweet from ABC. New, Donald Trump specifically has been invoked in connection with violent acts 
threats of violence or assault allegations in at least 36 criminal cases nationwide, per ABC News Review, no such cases were found in the names of Barack Obama or George W. Bush. I saw that story a few minutes after I read the story about the Navy SEAL who's training dogs to go after mass shooters. There are people in this country who would rather send a dog on a suicide mission than ban weapons of war. And my reaction to that story was to tweet about it, and I texted my friend Tracy, who suggested we form a Dog Moms Demand Action group, and I laughed. And I think that used up whatever emotional resilience I had that day. Because when I saw the ABC story about criminals invoking Trump's name, my heart stopped for a second. I felt darkness wrap around me and suffocate me. And in the space of a second, I just felt lost, just utter sadness. And a belief that there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that we can do. That the work a lot of us are doing to steer this country somewhere safer and more just is just never going to work. That the, the ship of state is too big. It's been on this course too long. And I, I wasn't sure what's more frightening. That the idea that we're the Titanic and this enormous ship is heading for its own destruction or that we're a ship of war and the casualties will mostly be on the other side. Because this show and my work in general is on some level about action, about what we can do to change the things in our lives and in the world, I am usually not very hopeless. Action erodes despair. But sometimes, like this week, the despair broke through. And I know you listeners experience it because I hear about it all the time, and you usually ask me what you can do about it. And I pretend to have answers I can tell you what works for me, and it is action to connect with the world, to be in service of someone, even in a really small way. And I still believe that, and that advice still stands, and it still works, but I guess I also wanted you to know that I know what it feels like to need to hear that advice, to be lost in that darkness for a second or more than a second. And I want to say to to all of us, to you and to me, that that is okay. Feeling hopeless is okay. Like a lot of negative emotions, it sucks to be in the middle of it, but it is better than feeling nothing, and it passes. As I hear in therapy all the time, a feeling is not a fact. And we can't dwell in our hopelessness. Dwelling in hopelessness leads to nihilism, and as Elizabeth and I were just saying, nihilism is how we got here. And in my darkest moments, the ones that have to do with politics, at least, and not my brain chemistry fucking up, what I try to keep in mind is that even if I feel hopeless, I can take action as though I believed there was a chance that things would change. In sincerity, I'm telling you, there's a real case for it. And I can act with that insincerity because I know that if I do nothing, then nothing will change. As for how things wound up for me earlier this week, to be honest, actually what happened is I wound up having work to do. Um, I had to do an emergency rescheduling. I had to go pick up Exley from Doggy Daycare. I had to decide if I could make it to the gym. And I was looking forward to finishing up Stranger Things with John. And those are all kind of random, standard parts of someone's life. But I thank God for those things. 
each of them connects me to my loved ones, to the world, and to you. Take care of yourselves.